Church family, I invite you to open up in your copy of God's Word to Genesis chapter 11. In Genesis chapter 11, we're going to be in verses 10 through 26. The title of the message today is God's Sovereignty Over the Nations, One Line of Promise. As we look at Genesis 11, 10 through 26, once you find that, you follow along in your copy of God's Word as I read. This is the Word of God. These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Arpachshad two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered Arpachshad 500 years and had other sons and daughters. When Arpachshad had lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. And Arpachshad lived after he fathered Shelah 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he fathered Eber. And Shelah lived after he fathered Eber 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg, and Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Ru, and Peleg lived after he fathered Ru 209 years and had other sons and daughters. When Ru had lived 32 years, he fathered Sarag, and Ru lived after he fathered Sarag 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Sarag had lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor, and Sarag lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. This is the word of the Lord for his church today. Heavenly Father, would you open up our hearts and minds to understand your word to apply it to our lives. Lord, we need you to help us not only to understand it, but then to take what we learn and put it into practice in our day-to-day lives. So Father, would you be with us in this time where we study your holy word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. As we've studied Genesis chapter 10 and then chapter 11 verses 1 through 9 over the past couple weeks, we've seen this theme, this theme of God's sovereignty over the nations. As I read chapter 10 and chapter 11, that's just one of the things that just is glaring out at this, of the, these two chapters is God's just sovereignty over all that is going on in this world. These two chapters, 10 and 11, are sandwiched in between the global flood which we spent a few weeks looking at, and Abraham and his descendants, which picks up after the verse that we just stopped with and then keeps on rolling all the way through the rest of the book of Genesis and on through the Old Testament. Now, these two chapters sandwiched in between these well-known events of the flood and the life of Abraham and his descendants, they may seem less important than the flood and the patriarchs of the nation of Israel, but I think what we've seen is that there's a whole lot that we can learn. There's much to learn from these two chapters. In chapter 10, we learned how we're all part of one family tree. And then in chapter 11, verses 1 through 9, we learned uh, that, that there is one ultimate authority. There is one final authority over all of the earth. And then today as we study verses 10 through 26 of chapter 11, I think what our attention is drawn to is this one line of promise. One line of promise. And through it all, we've seen over and over that God is sovereign over the peoples of this world, over all that takes place. 
To say that God is sovereign means that he is in complete control all of the time of everything that is happening. Nothing happens which ever surprises God. Nothing happens which ever messes up his plan. That's what it means that he is sovereign. As Paul said to the Athenians in Acts chapter 17, he said, in him we live and move and have our being. In him we live and move and have our being. It was Paul, a Jew, speaking to Gentiles that we encompasses all the peoples of the world. In him we live and move and have our being. As we look at verses 10 through 26 today, it's easy to see only a genealogy because that's what we have here. We have a genealogy. It's easy to see just a list of names. But I think there are some truths for us to grab onto, to believe, and to apply to our lives. Let me give you a summary of what I think we can learn from Genesis chapter 11, verses 10 through 26. Church family, God sovereignly focuses on one family line in order to fulfill his promise for the nations. God sovereignly focuses on one family line in order to fulfill his promise for the nations. You see that Genesis chapter 11 verse 10 begins a new section by using that, that formula, that phrase that we keep seeing repeated. These are the generations of it's the fifth time that we've seen this phrase used as a section heading here in Genesis. We've seen the generations of the heavens and the earth, the generations of Adam, the generations of Noah, the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And now we see the generations of Shem. If you'll recall, back at the end of chapter 10, the text was giving the lineage of Shem. Do you remember that? You can glance your eyes back to the end of chapter 10, and we had the lineage of Shem. And we learned that Shem's great-grandson, whose name was Eber, had two sons, and their names were Joktan and Peleg. And the genealogy in chapter 10 followed the line of Joktan, but it didn't really say anything else about Peleg. And then we jumped into the account of the Tower of Babel in chapter, the beginning of chapter 11, which we looked at last week. And now in verse 10, what happens is, just to let you see the structure, we go back to where we were before the Tower of Babel, back to that line of Shem. But this time, Joktan is skipped, and we trace the line of Shem through Joktan's brother, Peleg. Again, there's a rhyme and a reason to what's happening in these chapters. We trace from Shem through Peleg down to a man named Terah who had three sons, one of whom we are very familiar with, right? Abram and then Nahor and Haran, Abram's brothers. What's going on here? Let me try to give you the big picture with three words, okay? Because I, I want you to, as you, when you go back later and you read Genesis, one of my, one of my desires for you is that, that you are less confused than the last time you read it. And I say that for you and me. Hopefully every time we read God's Word, we are a little less confused, especially in a passage like this, where it's easy to open it up and just kind of go, man, I don't know what's going on there, and just keep going. I hope that next time you read this, you'll, you'll kind of have a little bit better understanding. Um, and I hope the same for me. So chapter 10, the table of nations was about multiplying. I said three words. So multiplying, that was chapter 10. Then chapter 11, verses 1 through 9, which is Tower of Babel, is about scattering multiplying and then scattering, multiplying of the people into many nations, the scattering, how they became many nations. And then the word that I would use for chapter 10, excuse me, 11 verses 10 through 26 is the word narrowing. So if you kind of trace from 10 to 11 to the second part of 11, it's multiplying, scattering, 
and then narrowing. Narrowing. What do I mean by narrowing? I don't mean a narrowing of God's plan. I don't mean God started out thinking, I'm going to bring salvation for all people, and then he changed his mind and said, nah, not for all people. I'm just going to bring salvation for one, one little group of people, just the line of Shem. No, 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 that's not what I mean by narrowing. What do we mean by, by that? By narrowing, we mean that God's going God's to send this promised deliverer that he promised back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And this man is coming, and he's going to provide that deliverance. But this man is going to have to come from a woman, and this woman is going to be descended from a particular line of the one family tree of humanity. And so what Genesis chapter 11, verse 10 through 26 is doing is it narrows our focus to this one line through whom this Messiah, this promised deliverer, would come. God's plan still includes all the nations. We don't want to forget about that that as we narrow down into the line of Shem. We don't want to forget about all the nations. In fact, just a few verses later in chapter 12, verse 3, God's going to pick right back up with this theme of the nations, blessing all the families of the world. God's plan still included all the nations, but the focus is now going to be upon this one particular line of people since this would be the line through whom would come this promised deliverer of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. So we've seen the multiplying, we've examined the scattering the past couple of weeks, and now we get to take a look at the narrowing. I want to share with you a few truths that we can learn from this particular passage, and then along the way I'm going to share with you some things that we can learn just about genealogies in general, because this isn't the only time we run across a genealogy in Scripture. In fact, it's not the first time already in the book of Genesis that we've uh, we've come to a genealogy. So, first main truth that I want to share with you is this. God is always moving his world toward the fulfillment of his sovereign plan. God is always moving his world toward the fulfillment of his sovereign plan. That's one of the things I think we learn from this genealogy. When we come to many of the genealogies in Scripture, it's so easy to skip over them. But I think genealogies serve a very important purpose in the Bible. They teach us that God is always moving his world toward the fulfillment of his sovereign plan. Now, I use the word fulfillment because this plan comes to us in Scripture in the form of a promise. And a promise is something that needs to be fulfilled. And so God's moving his world toward toward the fulfillment of his sovereign plan. Fulfillment because it comes in the form of a promise. Well, what is this sovereign plan of God? You're going to hear me use the word fulfillment several times uh, throughout today. So we need to make sure we understand what are we talking about fulfilling? What is this sovereign plan of God? I think I'm just going to let Paul summarize this plan for us from Ephesians chapter 1. So I want you to listen. This is coming from Ephesians chapter 1. I'm going to start in verse 3. And this is Paul summarizing for the Ephesians um, and for the churches in that day and then for us today, God's sovereign plan. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, 
to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, here we go, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. That has been, church family, that has been, that is, and that will always be God's sovereign plan to unite all things in heaven and on earth in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we talk about God moving his world toward the fulfillment of his sovereign plan. That's the plan that we're talking about. That's obviously a plan that only God, only God could do. God communicated this plan first to humanity in the form of a promise in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Remember, there in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God promised to send a male offspring of the woman who would war against the serpent, would be struck by the serpent, and would ultimately defeat the serpent. You say, well, that's great, but what in the world does that have to do with the genealogy of Shem in Genesis chapter 11, verse 10 through 26? Well, simply put, the promised deliverer of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the one in whom God is going to unite all things in heaven and on earth, will be a descendant of Shem. Narrowing. We're getting closer to understanding who this person is, where he is coming from. This genealogy is moving us toward the fulfillment of God's sovereign plan. Once we read Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that promise of a man born of woman who will destroy the serpent, once we read that, then as we read the rest of the Old Testament and into the New Testament, we ought to be asking the questions, who is this man, which family, which nation is he going to be born into? Because we don't want to miss him. We don't want to miss him, and so we always want to be looking for him. We want to read God's word and say, is this him? Where is he at? Where is the promised deliverer? Is he here? Is he there? And when we get to the genealogy of Shem, God is saying to us, look over here. This is where the promised deliverer is going to come from. It's good news. Now, what I would like to do is give you some general thoughts about biblical genealogies, which I think will drive this point home that God is always moving his world toward the fulfillment of his sovereign plan. And then we'll close with two final truths from this passage. Now, like I said, genealogies can, be, can seem boring and can be tempting to skip over as we read God's word. If we were all honest today, and sometimes I talk with you and we talk about reading the Bible and you say, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometimes I kind of tend to skip over and I say, yeah, it's easy to do that. But I want to help you make some sense of the genealogy of the scripture and at least appreciate them a little bit more. So I'm going to give you five things that I think genealogies do, okay? I'm going to go through these fairly quickly. So if you're a note taker, you're going to have to write kind of quickly, okay? Um, but, uh, but you might have enough time. Let me give you kind of five words that we're going to see. Genealogies keep us looking, linking, moving, trusting, and focusing. Now, here's what I mean. First, genealogies keep us looking in the right direction for the fulfillment. Genealogies keep us looking in the right direction for the fulfillment. And remember, when I say fulfillment, I mean the fulfillment of God's sovereign plan. You see, it's easy to get lost in the pages of Scripture. It's easy to begin to wonder 
Where in the world is this promised deliverer going to come from? I mean, put yourself in the shoes of someone living in the time of, say, the, the exile of the people of Israel, when Israel and Judah have been conquered, and they're, they're, they're just wondering, they're looking like, where is, where is the, this promised one going to come from? Where is the Messiah coming from? Or maybe so, put yourself in the shoes of someone living around the year 3 B.C., the year 3 B.C., like maybe Simeon or Anna, and they're looking for the consolation of Israel. They're searching the scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures. They're wondering, where's this Messiah going to come from? You see, genealogies kept them, and they keep us looking in the right direction. In Genesis 5, the genealogy pointed us to the descendants of Seth. Now in chapter 11, the genealogy points us in the direction of Shem, and then on to Terah. This doesn't mean that every genealogy in Scripture is a genealogy of Jesus. Scripture gives several genealogies of lines which do not lead to Jesus. However, even those, I think, help focus our attention on the line that leads to Jesus because oftentimes the brevity of those, how short they are, and the lack of detail that is given about those people compared to the detail that we have about the people in the genealogies of Jesus, even those genealogies help steer us away from those lines as we are looking for this coming Messiah, as we are looking for this correct lineage. And so genealogies keep us looking in the right direction for the fulfillment. It's kind of like clues along the trail so that we know this is, this is the right path. I'm on the right path getting to the promised Savior. Second, genealogies keep us linking. Remember, these are five things about genealogies. Genealogies keep us linking the smaller stories to the grand storyline of God's fulfillment. Just as it could be confusing where to look for the promised deliverer, it's also easy to separate the stories of Scripture into individual, separate accounts instead of linking them together to see God's work all along the way, how his hand is involved in everything that is happening and is telling one bigger story. For instance, this genealogy of Shem basically picks up where, um, where the genealogy of chapter 5 leaves off. If you were to go back to the end of chapter 5, you would find these words. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And then if you just skipped ahead to chapter 11... You see these words. These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered and then owned what we read just a few moments ago. So you see what's happening. God isn't giving us a random, disconnected collection of, of stories in his word. That's not what he's doing. All of these stories that, that we find in God's word are telling one big story. So I mean by this grand storyline of Scripture. And we've already seen what that grand storyline is when I read from Ephesians 1 just a moment ago. It's God's plan to unite all things in Christ who is the promised man of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. The Bible's telling us that one big grand story. And genealogies can actually serve to help us link the pieces together. So we don't disconnect the stories of God's word, but we keep them as part of the whole. Third thing about genealogies. Genealogies keep us moving forward in the story of God's fulfillment. Genealogies keep us moving forward in the story of God's fulfillment. Genealogies, let me put it this way, they propel us forward. They push us on in the story so we don't get bogged down. 
I know the Bible is a big book, but I want you to just think about how small it is compared to everything that's ever happened in the history of the world, right? I mean, sometimes we say, man, the Bible's such a big book, right? Well, it leaves out a lot of what has happened in the history of the world. Yes, God does give us very specific details of certain events and certain people along the way, but he skips over a lot. Just think about the genealogy of Shem. In a matter of 17 short verses, very short verses, we covered what I read just a minute ago when I read this passage, we covered at least 390 years, just like that. We just, we just raced through 390 years. What's God doing? Well, he's keeping us from getting bogged down and is moving us forward in the story of his fulfillment of his sovereign plan. See, this genealogy along with others in Scripture are pushing us forward, pushing us onward toward Jesus. The story of Babel is fascinating. I really enjoyed studying that with all of you last week. It's a fascinating story. But church family, the story of the Son of God coming and dying for our sins and rising from the dead is far greater than the story of the Tower of Babel. We need to read and study every story God has given us along the way to Jesus, or else he wouldn't have given it to us. But we don't need to get get stuck there. We need to get to Jesus. There's something better coming. And so genealogies keep us moving forward. They propel us forward in the story of God's fulfillment. Fourth thing about genealogies. Genealogies keep us trusting. They keep us trusting God to sovereignly bring about the fulfillment. This is one I've struggled to figure out how to put it in words, but it's one that, that, that God has worked in my heart as I read genealogies and it's one of the things that I walk away from them just um, worshiping God for. Genealogies serve to build my trust in God, to sovereignly bring about the fulfillment. Whenever I read a genealogy like this one in God's word, I'm reminded of God's, that theme that we've been talking about, God's sovereignty over the affairs of humanity and the events of history. God truly has a plan, and his plan will be carried out. And even when it may look like God isn't doing anything, he is. We know hardly anything about Arpachshad, and Shelah, and Eber, and Peleg, and Ru, and Sereg, and Nahor. But listen, they were all a part of God's plan to bring about the promised deliverer. It may have seemed like God wasn't doing anything in their lives, but he absolutely was. One of my favorite genealogies in Scripture, by far, one of my favorite genealogies in Scripture, and not just because it's one of the shorter ones, okay? But it is one of the shorter ones. Uh, One of my favorite genealogies in Scripture is found at the end of the book of Ruth. I love that genealogy. And what we learn in the story of Ruth is that Ruth was a Moabite. She was not an Israelite. She's from a different nation. She was married to an Israelite. That man died. And through a whole series of events, she ends up becoming the great-grandmother of King David, which means that Ruth was an ancestor of Jesus. Now, Ruth, if you go, go read the story of Ruth, she lived during a really hard time. She endured much suffering, and perhaps it seemed like God was absent 
in many places along the way during her life. But he was not. He was sovereignly orchestrating the events of history to bring about the fulfillment of his salvation plan. And we see that clearly when? At the end of the book of Ruth, when we have a genealogy. And all of a sudden we realize, whoa, wait a second. Ruth, just a couple of generations, a few generations later, is going to have David. It's one of her descendants. And King David is in the line of Jesus, which means Ruth is in the line of Jesus. I mean, God was at work in the life of Ruth to bring about his sovereign plan. And I don't know about you, but that just, that just builds my trust in God. God is a God who can be trusted, and genealogies help us see that truth. And then, and then the fifth thing about genealogies. Genealogies keep us focusing on God's focus of fulfillment. Genealogies keep us focusing on God's focus of fulfillment. We always have to be on guard of getting distracted from the main thing when we read and study Scripture. we got to be careful not to just get bogged down and never make it to Jesus. We have to be careful when we read Scripture not to disconnect the parts of the story from the whole. Remember that linking thing that we talked about earlier? But we also have to be on guard of getting distracted from the main thing when we read and study Scripture. Unfortunately, and this happens all the time, okay, all the time. Unfortunately, many people study stories in the Old Testament, but the only thing they get out of them are some moral lessons. This happens all the time. It happens in sermons. It happens in Sunday school lessons. It happens in children's classes. It happens when I'm sitting at home, just me reading my Bible, and I go, God, what do, what do I get out of that story? It happens when sharing, sharing Scripture with my children at home. It happens all the time. It's so easy for us to just read a story in the Old Testament, say, what's the moral of the story? And then we go on from there. You know what all that, is trying, all that does is it, is it gets us in this mindset that I just need to be a better person. But what the overall story of Scripture is, is that I'm a lost, dead sinner, and I need a Savior. Let, let, me, let me give you an example. It would be easy to get distracted when reading the Tower of Babel, which we studied last week, and think that it's just there to teach us a moral lesson about the danger of pride. I mean, obviously, there's pride there. They're going to build this tower to heaven. I'm not going to rehash last week's sermon. But pride, was a, that, that was a sin, right? I mean, that was kind of a big deal. Like, they, they were a prideful people. They're rebelling against God. And obviously, the Tower of Babel does teach us to be careful about the pride that can well up within our own hearts and souls. But as we study or read the story of the Tower of Babel, we don't want to lose sight of the search for the Savior as we are warned against prideful living. And so the genealogy of Shem coming right on the heels of the Tower of Babel serves to kind of refocus us back on God's mission. It's a mission. God's mission is not a mission merely to bunch up, uh, excuse me, bust up a bunch of prideful people who are building a tower, but his ultimate mission is to send a Savior who will rescue people from their pride. And so if I walk away from the Tower of Babel just going, oh, I don't need to be a prideful person, well, I miss the bigger picture. And the, and the, and the lineage of Shem, the, 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 um, the, the genealogy of Shem following on the hills helps get me back focused on that big picture. Listen, 
God, God's purpose in, in the world wasn't just to scatter the nations. It's to send a Savior, and he's coming through the line of Shem. That's the focus of God, and it should be ours as well as we read and study and apply his word. Now, I hope that, I hope in some little way that that maybe helps you make a little more sense of some of the genealogies when you read God's word. And maybe you won't just skip over them thinking, this has nothing to do with my life today. I really think it does. They keep us looking in the right direction. They keep us linking the smaller stories to the grand story of God's fulfillment. They keep us moving forward in the story of God's fulfillment. They keep us trusting God who is sovereign over all to bring about the fulfillment of his plan. And they keep us focusing on God's focus, which is to bring a savior. So the first truth we've seen in this passage is this. And we Spend most of our time on this one, but that's okay. God is always moving his world toward the fulfillment of his sovereign plan. Of his sovereign plan. Now let me share with you two more truths from this passage that I think will help drive us to Jesus, okay? Number two, God's gracious plan overshadows human rebellion. God's gracious plan overshadows human rebellion. There is so much good news, even in a passage like this. There is so much good news here. You say, Zach, where in the world do you see grace and rebellion in verses 10 through 26? Where, where do you see that? Well, that's a good question. And this is where reading a passage in its context helps us see more of what God is communicating than we would if we just rip the passage out of its context. Remember back in chapter 10, verse 25, we learned that in the days of Peleg, the earth was divided. And we said that this is probably referring to the division which took place at the Tower of Babel, when God divided up the peoples of the earth. He scattered them based on the new language which he gave them. And so if we remember that context, in the days of Peleg, the earth is divided, then we realize that the people of the earth were actively rebelling against God in the first half of this, this genealogy. Right in the middle of this genealogy, God had to come down, right? Not only to see the tower, because it was so little, but he had to come down to, to bust them up, to stop the rebellion, Right there in the middle of this genealogy. But what was God doing through it all? What's the genealogy telling us? He's preserving the line that would lead to the Savior. You see, the Tower of Babel seems to quickly shrink into the background as we move from it to this genealogy which is propelling us on to the promised deliverer. In other words, God's gracious plan just graciously overshadows human rebellion. All that rebellion has taken place in the midst of this genealogy, and yet it wasn't messing up God's plan in the least. The sovereign God of the nations will not be stopped by human rebellion. Before Babel, in the middle of Babel, and after Babel, God was doing his work of grace. He was working out his sovereign plan to send his only son to destroy the works of the serpent. And not only was he doing that, church, in the days, of, uh, in the days between Noah and Abraham, which we're reading about now, he's doing that today. He's doing that very thing today. Do you ever feel hopeless in the midst of human rebellion? Maybe it's the rebellion that you see in the world all around you and just kind of 
kind of makes you feel down, right? It kind of makes you feel hopeless. Maybe it's not the rebellion in the world all around you. Maybe it's rebellion in your own heart and life. And you feel hopeless in the midst of that. Yes, God is a God of awesome judgment, but church, God is also a God of immeasurable grace. And we see that on display right here in the genealogy of Shem. The Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 5, verse 20, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. This is one of the amazing things about our God. I mean, God would have been justified to stomp out humanity in the garden, but instead he provided clothes for Adam and Eve to cover the shame of their sin. God would have been justified to stomp out humanity in the flood. But he rescued one man and his family. God would have been justified to stomp out humanity at the Tower of Babel. But he gave Shem a genealogy that went past Peleg. A genealogy that went all the way to a man named Jesus who would lay down his life on the cross in the place of rebellious humanity. Church, church, praise God. Worship him that his gracious plan overshadows human rebellion. And I wonder if his gracious plan has overshadowed your rebellion. I wonder if his grace that can save us from all of our sin has come into your life and pushed out that sin and pulled in his holiness, the righteousness of Jesus. It doesn't matter how great your rebellion is. You can rest assured that the grace of God is greater than all our sin. And we see that right here in this passage. The genealogy of Shem is a genealogy of grace. And it is a grace. It is a free gift that is available to you if you receive today this gift by placing your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's only available through faith in Jesus. Which leads to this last and final truth. It's simply this. One final thing that I think we learn from this genealogy is that one line of promise means one way of salvation. One line of promise means one way of salvation. There are many nations listed in chapter 10 there were many peoples that were created at the Tower of Babel, but there is only one line of promise given to us in chapter 11. Why? Because there is only one deliverer. There is only one fulfillment of the promise of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. When we get to chapter 12 and God's promise to Abraham, we're going to clearly see that this promised deliverer coming through this one line of promise, was coming for all the nations, all the peoples of the world. But there's only going to be one deliverer. There are not many genealogies of grace leading to many saviors. There are not many ways for the many peoples of this earth to be saved. There's only one genealogy of grace, and therefore there is only one way for the many peoples of this earth to be saved. From Adam to Noah, from Shem to Abraham, from Isaac to Judah, from Perez to David, and on down through the generations, we see one line of promise leading to one Savior whose name is Jesus. And this Jesus, this promised descendant of David and Abraham who traced his lineage, and you can read about it, go read Luke chapter 3, who traced his lineage all the way back to Peleg and to Shem and to Noah and to Seth and to Adam. This Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. 
No one comes to the Father except through me. He didn't just pull that out of thin air. It had always been the case. One line of promise means one promised Savior. There's only one way for the nations to be saved. And so what do we learn in Genesis chapter 11, verse 10 through 26? Well, I think we learn that God sovereignly focuses on one family line in order to fulfill his promise for the nations. And that fulfillment ultimately came through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. He came, he died in your place, he took God's wrath upon himself, he rose from the dead in victory. So the question is, have we received this salvation, this promised deliverer? Have we received him? He said, repent and believe, for the kingdom of God is at hand. To repent means to turn from your sin. To believe means to cast yourself upon the Lord Jesus Christ, depending upon his work upon the cross to rescue you from every one of your sins. He can do it. He is the sovereign God of the nations. He's laid it out for us in his word. Will we trust? Will we believe? I deserve God's wrath because of my sin. You deserve God's wrath because of your sin. But we can enjoy the forgiveness of God because of God's grace through Jesus. If we'll call upon him to save us. It's God's plan. It's the only plan. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for how rich it is. Lord, if only we would dig a little deeper. If only we would spend a little bit more time. Not focusing on all the temporary frills of this life, but, but pouring ourselves into your word, letting your word pour itself into us. God, so that we can see what an awesome God you are. God, this one sovereign plan. God, and how you're the, you're the creator of all, and in your sovereignty you focus on this one family, and you're going to send this one man, and he's going to be the Savior for all the peoples of the world, for anyone and everyone who will call upon his name for salvation. God, it all happens according to your sovereign plan. God, the question before us is, where do we fit into that plan? God, I pray that every single one of us has trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation. But God, if there's someone here today who hasn't, Lord, I pray that you would help them for the very first time to see that your grace can overshadow the rebellion of their own heart. That's how big you are, that's how powerful you are, and that's how gracious you are. God, even right now in this moment, if there's someone who needs to call upon Jesus for salvation, I pray that they would do that. I pray that they would confess their sin to you. That they would tell you that they are ready to repent and to turn from that sin. They would ask you to save them 
because of what Jesus did on the cross, not because of anything that they've done. And they would rest in your sovereign plan of salvation for their lives through Jesus. Lord, help us to worship you, the God of the nations, celebrating Jesus. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.